We're going to begin this morning in Psalm 84. So if you'll flip over there, and then we'll be getting back to Numbers. Psalm 84. Let's pray together again. Jesus, I want to thank you for never giving up on us. I want to thank you for continuing to draw us to you. I thank you, Father, for convicting us when we need conviction and for changing our hearts. I want to thank you, Father, for for finding us where we are, even, Father, if it's in our sin and calling us out. I want to thank you for the road that you set before us, for the grand and glorious vision, Father, that you had from the beginning of time, before you created the world, from the foundations of all things. That vision to give us a lifetime to live in preparation for being with you. That vision, Father, for a road ahead of us, a journey that is sometimes blessed and easy and wonderful and other times very hard and challenging and yet equally blessed. I thank you for the road that you call us to and that we are on. And I pray, Father, that you will convict this morning And challenge us to be a people who move forward, who follow, who seek after you, who pursue you, who are passionate about our faith. I pray this morning for the little ones across the way as they sing songs and learn Bible stories, Lord, that you will develop in their hearts a deep and abiding passion for you. And Lord, this morning as we open your word... I pray that if we are not looking to you, if we are not feeling drawn towards you, or if we have set you aside in any way, Lord, that you will grab our attention. Holy Spirit, we seek your teaching and your guidance and your leading through the word. So speak to our hearts this morning, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 84 and verse 1 How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird has also found a house and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. I love that verse. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. That's a traveler's heart. 
That's the heart of one who is looking to the end of the road and not content standing in the middle of the road. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in You. Nothing compares... Nothing compares to coming into the house of the Lord. There is no better place to be. The psalmist says, I'd rather have a single day, even standing on the threshold of your courts. I'd even rather be a doorman in the courts of the Lord than to have a grand tent pitched in the place of, of wickedness. And even the little sparrows in the psalm are blessed. They just cruise right on in. Anytime they please, they enter into the house of the Lord. There's nothing to stop them. They build their nests on the altars. They make their home there. And even they are blessed. Nothing compares to the house of the Lord. And i got to ask you a question this morning. Do you really believe that? Maybe a, a sub-question to that is, what are you doing here today? I mean, really, why are you here? What made you get out of bed this morning and, and wander over to the farm? Was it some music? Maybe some Bible teaching so you could learn a bit more than, than you knew before? What is it that has you here? Maybe it's just like birds. <laughs> When I was a kid, the best place in the world to me was Disneyland. I grew up about 20 minutes south of there. We just get on the freeway. We could be at Disney in a few minutes. Even somewhat recently, in the last about 10 years ago, when Cheryl and the kids were living in Anaheim, we had Disney passes. We could go all the time. But I remember thinking, specifically as a kid, when I was in Disneyland, if I just hide out when the park closes, I could live here forever. <laughs> I didn't think about the fact that it was my dad and mom who were paying for all the meals. But I thought I'd, I'd find a nice hiding place on Tom Sawyer's Island or something. You know, or maybe get off the ride in the middle of the haunted mansion. Yeah, that probably wouldn't be a good idea for a small child. Maybe hide out behind the skeletons and the Pirates of the Caribbean. But I could live here forever. Because to a child, Disneyland was fantasy. There was nothing real. It was all just wonderful. Everything always worked. Everything looked good. As an adult, a single day in Disneyland wipes me out. <laughs> We had this brilliant idea when we went down there a few weeks back and took Hayden with us that we were going to spend two days back to back at Disney. So we go to Disneyland and California Adventure and back to Disneyland. And it was all planned and great and we were so excited until the end of the first day. When I literally had walked the soles of my feet off, the bones poking through. I mean, it, I was in pain. I was tired. And for the first time in my life, the thought of going back to Disneyland the next morning made me sick. <laughs> I honestly came to the point where I thought about saying, Cheryl, why don't you just take Hayden and have a good time? Because I am done. And the next morning, you know, we got up and we trudged into Disney and we, you know, standing in the lines and all day long we're going, hallelujah, this is great, glad I'm here, you know. <laughs> so 
so not what I wanted it to be. It wipes me out. And there are so many things in our lives that we pursue, like Disneyland, that we think, this is a good place to live. Hey, this is a great place to be for a season. I'm really happy here. And then it wipes us out. There is no better place to be than the house of the Lord. The Bible declares it. It's the truth. It's where we're headed. And if that's where your heart is, terrific. But let me tell you this. If that's not where your heart is, you probably will not be happy at the bridge. What do you mean by that? I just mean that I don't want to be a part of a church that's into programs. And I don't want to be a part of a church that is always trying to do the next big thing, that is so focused on being big and, and, and growing out and, and all that, that, that it misses the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a part of a church that misses the Holy Spirit at work because we're so busy being in the soul and in the flesh. I don't want to be a part of a church that misses the simplicity of what God is calling us to. I just want to follow him. Now, I trip all the time, especially walking back and forth between the houses. The weeds are a little high, Rod. If you can take care of that, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> we stumble and we bumble along. Les likes to quote the verse, Happily we grope after him that we might find him. You know, sometimes we're like kids in the dark trying to understand the Lord, misunderstanding the Lord. But as long as we remain faithful to the study of the Word, focusing on the Word, and we continue to seek the work of the Holy Spirit, listening to Him, asking Him to be the guidance, the leader of this fellowship, then we're going to be fine. And that's the kind of church I want to be involved with. But I have to ask you again, why are you here? What are you doing here? Why do you care to take the time to be here? Because if you're showing up for a once a week filling, you're wasting your time and frankly you're wasting my time. Do you want to stay on that highway to Zion? Is that where your heart is? Do you want to see God? Do you want to be in heaven? Do you want a life beginning right now today that is radically altered and different than it was before? I'll tell you what, if you're not changing, I heard this just yesterday, Larry, I think you're the one who was quoting, maybe it was Graham Cook. If you're not changing every three to five years, you are not growing. Well, I would submit if we're not in a constant state of growth toward Jesus, we're missing it. I don't want to miss him. I don't want to settle. Why am I saying all this? Because I think the vast majority of Christian people settle. We settle. I'm comfortable where I'm at. Don't ask me to go any further. Don't ask me to change. Don't ask me to really consider my heart and my life. I'm really too busy considering everybody else's. There's a lot of problems out there. I don't want to deal with me. I don't want to deal with stuff, especially if it's painful for me to look inside and see where my heart really is at. I don't want to do that. And so we settle. And what ends up happening is we end up settling on this side of what God is inviting us to. He wants us over there. He wants us in a better place. 
And we sing so happily. Better is one day in your courts, and yet we don't get to the courts because we're settling back here. I'm comfortable with Sunday attendance. That's all I really need. It's good for me. It makes life good. And beyond that, Father, I am happy right here. You know what Paul said? Philippians chapter 1, he said, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, but hey, if I'm going to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. I'm hard pressed. From both directions. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And it blows my mind that Paul's mentality was such that he couldn't decide which way he wanted to go. To live or die. Most of us would say, hey, if given the choice between dying today or living a few more days, most of us would say, I'll take the living. Paul says, I can't make that choice. I'm going to have to leave that one in the hands of God because I can't make that decision. Because where I'm going is too awesome. God does not want us to settle. As a matter of fact, settling, and listen to me, settling is a spiritual impossibility. Did you know that? You can't settle. If you try, there are two directions you can go with the Lord. You can go forward or you can go backward. You cannot settle. You cannot just sit where you're at and let it roll. Because if you think you're doing that and if you're comfortable doing that, you are going backwards right now. You're either pursuing Jesus, following Him, going forward in your faith, growing up in your salvation, or you're headed the other way. There is no settling. And God's heart for us, and we've read this verse many times lately, Hebrews 10.38 says, Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That's God's heart for us. Not shrinky dinks. He wants people going forward and following and growing. What's the big deal about all this? What if I'm comfortable where I am? We're going to look at two primary passages this morning to deal with this. And a critical moment in the history of Israel, especially in the history of a couple of tribes. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 32, and we'll look back at Mark chapter 5. I want you to turn there first, so go ahead and do that. Mark chapter 5. Now as you're flipping to Mark chapter 5, let me give you the intro to it. Jesus and the apostles had just had quite a ride. They just crossed the Sea of Galilee. They encountered a sudden storm, a tumultuous tempest. You know the one. The disciples were shrinking and Jesus was sleeping. The apostles were holding on for dear life. Jesus was asleep in the hold of the ship, peacefully resting. By the way, there's a picture there. I think it's pretty powerful. Jesus asleep in the hold, resting at peace, even in the middle of the storm. If you want peace in the storms of your life, you rest with Jesus. Don't stand on the deck with the apostles. They're just going to freak you out. Okay? Don't listen to men who are freaking out when things are not going well. You listen to the Lord and rest in Him. But as this is all going on, finally they, they call to Jesus, come, come save us, get us out of here. Jesus wakes up, you know the story, stands on the edge of the boat and just says, peace be still, and there's sudden glass, calm, well, they finally arrive safe and secure on the other side, or were they? 
Well, the moment they stepped out of the boat, they found themselves in a devilish dilemma. Yet another problem confronts them. They go with Jesus from stormy seas to a satanic shore, and they recognize immediately that their landing is both unclean and unsafe. What do you mean? It's unclean because they landed right near the local tombs. The local tombs. They get out of the boat, and it's an unclean place. Tombs nearby, dead bodies. This is not clean for the Jewish person. There's nothing kosher about the cemetery. But it's also unsafe because the moment they arrive and begin to pile out of the boat, here comes a demon-possessed man, and not just any demon-possessed man, a man who runs right into them, who has a legion of demons dwelling within him. Look at the story. Verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs because no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. There was a lot of people living inside this guy. A lot of demons, a lot of power. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. This is a horror picture. It's a frightening scene. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. Now listen, when he bowed down before Jesus, this worship, this worship is compulsory. He wasn't worshiping, bowing down because he wanted to, he had to. What do you mean? Listen, the demons, the demons believe. They remain under the power, under the authority of Jesus. When they saw him coming, they had to fall down. They probably didn't want to. But James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And these demons in this man had to bow down before the authority of Jesus. And so they fall down. This is not worshipful. It's compulsory. There's a grave difference here between belief and faith. Please know that. You can say all day long you believe in Jesus, but do you have faith in Him? Do you believe Him? Are you walking in relationship with Him, or do you just know He's out there somewhere? The demons know He's out there somewhere. They're not saved. Salvation is not found in just saying, yeah, I think there's God. Salvation is in faith in God's grace to save you. It's more than belief. Well, verse 7 going on, shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. He's coming at Jesus and he's saying, What do you want? Or they're saying, What do you want? What have you to do with us? Why are you here? This is our area. But what do you want with us? You know what Jesus wants? He wants the soul of this man back. He wants the spirit of this tormented man saved. He wants this man's life changed. He wants one of his own received and reclaimed from the demonic enemy. He wants him back. Verse 8. He had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a military term. You may know this. It means 6,000. So my assumption is this man was filled with 6,000 demons. 
This is an awful scenario. Verse 10. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Something to understand about the demonic and about how demons work. They have locations where they are comfortable, where they have settled, and they don't want to be pushed out. They want to stay right where they are, and they want to work right where they are. And they want to have their way right where they are. And Jesus says, you know what happens if you drive one demon out, he's going to go find seven other demons and come back and try and retake the same place. And so if you've been in a place in your life where you have rejected Jesus, and you have been, and I'm talking locationally, you need to be alert to the fact that the demons want to hold that place. And it's only the blood of Jesus that can cause them to flee. We're going on in verse, in verse 11. Oh, by the way, by the way, what place are they talking about? They, they were imploring him earnestly, don't send us out of the country. Don't send us away from this place. What place was that? Look back at verse 1. It's the country of the Gerasenes. You might want to circle that or underline that in your Bible. It's critical to our study this morning. The Gerasenes is their demonic home. This is where they reside. And they have for a long, long time. I'll explain in a minute. Verse 11. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And that's Satan's desire for people to turn them into pigs. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to be selfish and self-obsessed and self-centered pigs. That's what Satan wants. Mess up our lives and make us sloppy, swinish pigs. So verse 13 going on, Jesus gave them permission. That it tells you a little bit about his power. He gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came, came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see the Bay of Pigs. Deviled ham. Swine Lake. Whatever you want to call it. The transformation gang freaked out the people. What people? What people were frightened when they came back and saw the transformed man? What people? The people of the Gerasenes. People of the Gerasenes. That region called the Gerasenes. Verse 15. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. That is amazing. They would rather have a wild, crazy, demon-possessed man in their region than Jesus Christ. Do you live anywhere like that today? A place where they would rather have the demon-possessed and the Savior of our souls. We understood this man's possession 
What we don't understand is the peace and the gentleness and the joy that we see in this man right now. This is what the people are saying. They're looking at him going, okay, his possession we can handle. We can deal with. We just lived in the tombs and when we had to go out there, we'd just bring extra chains. We understood that. We don't understand him in his right mind. We don't get this. We don't, this transformation makes no sense to us. Now this story has a fascinating connection with Numbers 32, which we'll go back to in just a second. Many of you have heard this story. The whole idea of the demon-possessed man and the bay of pigs with the pigs driving down that steep cliff and going into the sea. But there are a couple of geographical questions that need to be answered in understanding this story. Geographical question number one. Why are there herds of swine in this region called the Gerasenes? Why are there herds of pigs there? Listen, pigs are forbidden in the old law to the Jewish people. The Jews were not pig herders. They were shepherds. Sheep herders. They were cattle herders. They were not pig herders. Why are there pigs there? And why also, second geographical location, this place is also called, down in verse 20, the Decapolis. The Decapolis. Why is it called the Decapolis? That's a Greek name. It's not a Hebrew name. Aren't we in Judea here? Aren't we in Israel? Why are there pigs there? And why is this place called by a Greek name? It's on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so there are pigs there, and there are ten Greek cities, Decapolis, Decca for ten. Nine of the cities of the Decapolis were on that eastern side of the Galilee, and there was one on the western side. In fact, if you go to Israel with us, and I still invite you to go, if you haven't made a decision to do that, you can just talk to me afterwards. But there's the largest archaeological find in all of Israel to date is called Bet Shean. It's huge. A massive Roman city of imported white and red marble. Think about that. 2,000 years ago, white and red marble imported from Italy over to Israel. Think about how they must have gotten it there. Amazing. The grand city that the Romans even called for a time the Star of the East. And even at one point in history replaced Jerusalem as the capital of that region. And up on a hill above the city, and you can see it today, was a high place that held the temple to the patron god of wine and partying, Dionysus. You might know him better as Bacchus. where we get the word in our English language, Bacchanalia. Partying, good time, drinking. And this god, this demon, really, Dionysus, that had that temple up there to him, was the god of the party. And so in this piggish, Greco-Roman named region, we have a highly pagan region. And we see it clearly in the people's response to Jesus. We don't understand you. Leave us. Go away from us. This is the region of Dionysus. This is the region of the pigs. This is a region of paganism. Go away from us. Now keep this story in mind and go back to Numbers 32. Numbers 32, verse 1. Children of Israel on the border of the Promised Land. They are right there next to the Jordan River. They're all gathered together. They are about to cross over finally and take that land that was promised to them. That land that would be allotted among them. Beginning in verse 1, Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. 
And when they saw the land of Jazer, in the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Devon and Jazer and Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sebum, Nebo, and beyond. The land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. So Reubenites and the Gadites, my friends, have settled. They've come all this way. 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. All the way from Egypt, they now stand on the threshold of the promised land. They are about ready to receive the blessing of the land God promised for them. And they say, you know, we're comfortable right here. This is a good place to be. Business is good here. Our livestock, our sheep and our cattle, they're feeding well. Our families are content here. Look at our children playing among the tents. Don't make us cross over. The Lord is calling, go west, young man. I've got a better place. And the Reubenites and the Gadites are saying, can't we just stay east? Because, listen, because for them, this was good enough. Good enough. It makes me shudder. Good enough Christianity. Good enough. Is that, is that what you want? Going back to the original question, is that what you want in your life? Good enough. I, I, I'm fine. I don't need more. I don't need to be closer. I'm fine. It's good enough. Don't make me one of those radical right-wing fundamentalist freaks. I don't need that. Because if I do that, you know, people are going to notice and it's going to change everything. I'm comfortable here. I'm good enough. And when we say we're good enough and when we settle, we deny what the Father wants for us. We deny the blessing and the gifts that He has to offer. Listen to this verse. Ephesians 3.20 Paul says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Some versions say to Him who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. The word translated think or imagine here, it's the word in the Greek noieo, it means to comprehend. Paul says God can do more than you can even comprehend. You have no idea how much God has planned for you, what He can take you into. You have no concept of the vastness of the glory of God and what He is calling you to. You have not seen the promised land. You don't know the blessings. You can't even imagine what it is God has planned. Do you really want to settle where you are? Now listen, because here is the damnable connection between Numbers 32 and Mark chapter 5. This east side, the place where Reuben and Gad want to settle, is the region of the Gerasenes. Same place. Same place. That Greco-Roman pagan, pagan community, piggish community, by Jesus' day is literally called not Gerasenes, but Gadarenos. Gadarenos. Gad. The city of Gad. The region of Gad. Looks good to the Gadites and the Reubenites in their day before they were supposed to cross over. Looks fine. Seems just right for their flocks and their family. But by Jesus' day, that region that they wanted so badly was completely pagan. God knew something that the Reubenites and the Gadites did not know. 
And so God said, I want you to cross over the Jordan. I want you in the land of promise. And the way that God works is He works from the small out. He wanted them to start in that land. Now, the region that God really gave them goes all the way to the Euphrates River. We're going to talk about that tonight in the Revelation study. This is a vast, vast region. But to begin with, God wanted them all across the Jordan in a strong place from which they could grow. It's kind of like when Jesus told the apostles, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. God begins here and works out. He does the same thing in our lives and our hearts, by the way. He begins right here. And the change begins to work its way out of us. Until we're impacting other lives. And so in this region, Gad thought it was great. Reuben thought it was great. God knew where it was headed. And Moses was absolutely incensed. Look at his response. Verse 6, Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Which, by the way, happens in churches. People go to war. Fight the spiritual battle. Stand for the Lord. Grow in Him. While unfortunately the vast majority of churches just sit there. Now why are you discouraging, Moses said, the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land and think back for the next several verses down to verse 15, Moses gives them a history lesson, takes them back and says, 38 years ago this is what your fathers did. We came to this same place. We came to Kadesh. We're about to cross the Jordan. We send the spies in. And Tim came back and go, oh, it looks difficult. It looks challenging. It looks hard. Can't we just stay? And two, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, man. Yeah, it looks tough. Yeah, it looks difficult. Yes, there are giants in the land, but the Lord is with us. Oh, we can take it. We can do it. Two out of twelve. They were ready to go. Ten were not. Everybody's faith failed. And Moses says, you're just like your unbelieving fathers who died in the wilderness. And they say, all right, all right, all right, all right, Moses. Verse 16, don't have a cow. Relax. They came near to him and they said, we'll build here sheepfolds for our livestock. Verse 16. And cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place while our little ones live in fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. And we will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has his inheritance, his possession. They go on and say, verse 19, we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. And so Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you'll arm yourself before the Lord for war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward... You shall return and be free of the obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. Moses says, all right, if you want to settle, settle. You have a responsibility to your family, so come fight, but if you still want to go back and settle, you can do that, and it's so much like so many of us today. Think about this in the church. Hey, I'll help you out, but don't expect me to make a practice out of it. I'll be there for the special event. You know what? Honestly, I speak from my heart. Special events in churches just bug me. 
Let's see how many people we can cram into the building because we have a special event. On a friend's day, bring your friends. Don't bring them any other time, but bring them on that day. That's the great time. We're going to have food, we're going to have fanfare, we're going to have balloons, we're going to have clowns, we're going to do the whole thing. Special event. And so many people will get involved with the special event. But don't ask me to live there. Don't ask me to put my life in a place where I am constantly living for Jesus. No, I'm better on the other side of the Jordan. Thanks, but no thanks. The Reubenites and the Gadites, they helped battle. They helped their brothers get the land. But they chose to live outside of that place that God wanted them to be. And this would end up being nothing but trouble later on. In Joshua 22, the Reubenites and the Gadites, now on the other side of the Jordan River, decide to build their own altar. It's only supposed to be one altar. The altar at the tabernacle and eventually at the temple. But there is a rift then that happens among the people of Israel because the Reubenites and the Gadites say, Hey, we need to have an altar where we are. So we're going to build one right here. And the people of Israel begin to get contentious. One time brothers and sisters fighting, division, suspicion. It all arose between those who pressed into the land, those who went into the land, and those who refused to go forward. Later the people of Gad would be the first ones picked off by the Assyrians. They were outside of the protection. They were taken. The Reubenites were taken. It was bad news for them. To make a long story short, gang... The reason 90% of the Greek cities in Galilee in Jesus' day, the reason the pigs were there, and the reason pagan practices were so strong is exactly this. And listen, it's the one point you got to get this morning. We either go deeper or we get decapitalized. Decapitalized? Decapitalized? What's that? We either go deeper into the land or we become part of the decapolis, the pagan regions. We either go deeper with Jesus or we will be drawn and seduced into the world. The day is coming when the Word of God will offend your traditions. What are you going to do? You going to settle? This is what I was raised with. I know what this is saying, but that's not what I was raised with. There will be that time. It's happened to me, in fact, over and over across the first four books that we've been studying. Things that I held that were beliefs of mine that I thought must be right until Scripture contradicted it. And I go, whoa, I guess I wasn't right on that. In my home fellowship, the church that I was raised in in Southern California, I got to speak there when we were down there a couple, three weeks back. And I realized at the time that there were things that I had to be careful with because how easily offended people would be if I just spoke what I used to believe myself had someone come up and say because they're looking for a pastor say would you consider coming here and my first thought was you know what two weeks down the line I'd be fired (laughs) you think it'd be great give me a month of just teaching the Bible and I'd be out of here the Bible is going to challenge you gang What are you going to do? The day is coming when the Holy Spirit is going to present to you His power. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I don't want that charismatic stuff. Oh no. Oh no, they're doing that. There's there's gifts happening. I need to go somewhere where I can settle on the other side of the Jordan. It's more safe over there. I'm more comfortable. What are you going to do? The day is coming when the Lord will call this fellowship in a direction that confronts your sensibilities and what you think needs to happen. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? 
right now. You are either deeper or more shallow than you were five years ago. You are not the same. You realize that? You are not the same. You either increase or you decrease. But gang, listen, there is no such thing as cruise control in Christianity. No settling. You don't retire from spiritual conquest. You don't sit back. You either take the attack to the enemy, or the enemy will take the attack to you. And I'll tell you, the enemy is subtle, and you won't even know you're being attacked. You either fight for Jesus, stand for Him, live for Him passionately. We sing, stir in me a passion that the world cannot explain. Man, that song is such a great song, so easy to sing. Is it true? Are you so passionate about Jesus that friends and family are looking at you going, I don't get you anymore. I don't understand. It's like every word out of your mouth is Jesus this and Jesus that. The sheep either keep moving or they become pigs. Guys, I even know of one-time pastors who no longer attend church because they settled for Gadara, the region of the Gadareños, the place of Gad. I know of their children who thought they were protected on the east side of the Jordan who now say, go away from here, Jesus. We don't want you here. We don't need you in this place. Again, Hebrews 10, verse 38 says, In yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. He's coming. And he says, My soul takes pleasure in the one who lives by faith. Not the one who shrinks back, but the one who goes forward. The one who says, You know what? Whatever I used to think and believe, I will will sacrifice even that to follow after Jesus and what He has called me to and what He wants. I want to show you one last thing in Mark chapter 5 again. The end of the chapter, verse 18. Because I believe it speaks to each one of us. This man was healed. His life changed, altered radically. And it says that the people, the people of the region, verse 17, implored Jesus to leave. And as he was getting into the boat, Jesus that is, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany with him. Please let me come. Please let me get in the boat. Please let me be with you. And Jesus did not let him. It's one of the rare times in Scripture, gang, where someone asks to follow Jesus, to go with him, and he says, no, then he can't come. Instead, he says to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Why did Jesus do that? Why would he do that? Because in his sovereignty, he understood the best thing for this man to grow in his faith was for him to go back and tell people about what had happened. Not to just sit there, you know, ensconced in religion, settled in the boat, comfy with the disciples, but to go back and to talk about Jesus. That's what this man needed. And so it tells us in verse 20 that he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Skip over to Mark 6, verse 53. Mark 6, 53. And then into the story tells us, this now is later, months later, tells us they've now come back to land at Genesaret. 
or the Gadarenes. When they had crossed over, they came to land there and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Jesus and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in marketplaces and imploring him that they might have just touch, just have the touch of the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. The difference is radical here. Same place. We're now back in that same pagan region, but now that pagan region has people bringing the sick and the infirm and the unhealthy and the demon-possessed and the people with struggles and problems. They're bringing them to Jesus in droves. Why? One man. One man who was demon-possessed. One man who wanted to settle after he was saved, but Jesus said, I don't want you to settle. I want you to go. I want you to tell. I want you to get. We've gotten the demons out of you. Now don't go back inside yourself. You go out to people who need to hear about me. And you tell them about me. What made the difference in Gadara? The difference is the passion of the saved. This man knew what had happened. It had radically altered his life. And so he went. And he told. And he preached. And he taught. And the next time they go back there, Jesus and the disciples, they are hit with throngs of people. I had a vision for this church. I may have told you about this. I don't remember. It was big and I had some trouble getting my arms around it. The vision, the picture, was us standing outside around the pond. Standing around the pond while people were getting baptized. But it wasn't just us. It was hundreds of people standing around the pond waiting to go into the water to be baptized. Hundreds. Is that what's going to happen here? I don't know. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be awesome? Have hundreds giving their lives to Jesus? How is that going to happen, Rick? Well, i got a great program that we're going to go through. I'll tell you how it's going to happen. You go tell them what Jesus has done. You start living your lives one by one, each of us, with the passion of Christ. Not settling on the east side of the Jordan. Let's go into the promised land. When Jesus comes back, I want to be among a group of people who are marching toward Him. Who when we see Him go, Alright, finally! As opposed to, Whoa, that was a surprise. I want to know He's coming. I want to be ready. And I want you to be ready too. That's why the bridge is here. Not to settle, but to go on. Psalm 84, verse 5. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Let's bow for a moment.